Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. All right, welcome back from your many holidays. Uh, Let me tell you a little bit about what will go on later in the show. Uh, We're going to talk about a malware infection uh, that was hacked into one of America's larger newspaper chains. And in fact, also maybe not to put too rosy a face on it, but also maybe salute the fact that the newspapers managed to publish anyway. Uh, Newspapers often publish against all odds. We'll also be talking about the way black coaches in the NFL seem to pay a higher price for failure than white coaches in the NFL. But we're going to begin with a story that maybe you don't know, because I think one of the fundamental precepts of the Trump administration, at least from where I sit, is to do so many objectionable things at once that really only 20 percent of the objectionable things will be noticed just because of our mental bandwidth and our ability to process uh, lots of different news. So you probably haven't, unless you've read the article in question, you probably haven't thought very much about what the impact of the Trump administration on wildlife is. You'll be unsurprised to hear it's not, for the most part, good. Um, So joining us right now is Nick Tabor, a reporter and researcher for New York Magazine. Uh, He, in fact, uh, wrote the Trump administration's war on wildlife should be a scandal. I think I just explained why it's not a scandal. There's just (laughs) time to think about this. But we want to stop and think a little bit bit about it. Nick Tabor, welcome to our show. Hello. Good to be with you. So um, let's let's start. This is we'll start with a kind of an easy thing to wrap your mind around, although it's hard to wrap your mind around why this would be happening. So it's we've known for a long time that uh, it's not good to have lead bullets out in the environment uh, because, in particular, the animals you feed on carrion uh, are ingesting the lead, uh, putting it back out into the ecosystem, probably when they poop it out. But meanwhile, uh, you know, uh, animals, endangered species, even like the condor. do not benefit at all from ingesting lead in the meat that they eat. So what has the uh, the Ryan Zinke or the the former the administration known as formerly known as the Ryan Zinke administration done about this? Well, yeah, it's in in the past um but it, the Obama administration had had uh, instituted this regulation that said you can't use lead ammunition and when you're hunting in public land it seemed like kind of a no-brainer, but uh very quickly Ryan Zinke's interior department moved to to undo that regulation, um, so lead, lead ammunition is is uh, is fine again in, in in public lands. And do we know where the where did the pressure come from to make this change back to lead? It was I mean the the, the pressure came from um, I mean, of course from the, the ammunition industry, um, but I, I also think that it's just it, it's it's such a small trivial thing. I think it's both. Um, Kind of just kind of a signaling measure. It's like they it's it's symbolic as much as it is uh, as much as it is practical, and it's also indicative of how this administration has tended to just take a completely comprehensive approach um, to environmental deregulation. Uh, they're trying to sort of leave no stone unturned. So um, I think I they they would have been going through the books looking at regulations that Obama put into place that hadn't uh, yet fully taken effect. Um, and just as a matter of course, we're, we're stripping all of those away. 
Right. I mean, part of the theme of your article, and we'll we'll go through some of this, is that if uh, if the hunting lobby or the ammunition lobby or the oil lobby or somebody else comes forward to object to an, a, an existing restriction on their activities, the response seems to be, well, let me think about it. Okay, yes, we'll change it for you. Um, and yeah. so this is also the case. And we should also say that when it comes to the lead ammunition, there's also, I mean, the kind of Second Amendment gun freedom lobby. They just treat any kind of regulation that has anything to do with shooting anything out of any kind of firearm as an incursion on their fundamental constitutional rights. So the, yeah, they, they do, and they're very they're very explicit about that. I mean, they they will say. Uh, my my father used to say this when I was growing up that any regulation uh, opened the door for the government to take your guns away. So you needed to just oppose everything. Right. And it, we sh- it should be noted that hunters who, sw- who switch to copper uh, ammunition often say they never go back. Um, in fact, copper does things that lead doesn't do that hunters like. So it's weird. Um, so let's just talk about another kind of hunting, and that's uh, safaris. Uh, we've done uh, stuff on this show about the, the dwindling population uh, of elephants. But just overall, how's the safari industry doing with a president whose sons have been known to go off and shoot animals and then stand on top of them? Yeah, it's faring extremely well. Uh, the Interior Department has a, a board that ironically it calls the Wildlife Preservation Council that's stacked with people from the safari hunting industry. And uh, their most visible action has been to overturn this ban on importing lion and elephant carcasses into the U.S., um, uh, this is pretty ghastly just on its face. I mean, elephants are extremely intelligent animals. It's very clear that when you when you kill the leader of of the herd, which is what they tend to do, they tend to look for the you know the largest, oldest, grandest elephants they can. That it um, is extremely disruptive to the life of the whole tribe, and that it inflicts serious emotional suffering on these animals. So. They've, so they're now they're now granting permits to import to to kill and bring back both lions and and elephants from Africa. And here on domestic soil, they tried to have the first grizzly bear hunt at Yellowstone in forty years. Yes, yes. And there are only like seven hundred grizzlies uh, in the Yellowstone area, so it's not as though there are that many to go around. Um, they are a threatened species. So uh, yeah, a judge put the kibosh on that. All right. Well, let's get, keep moving through the chain of horrors uh, that Nick has collected for us. So there's the Migra- Migratory Bird Treaty Act. This is kind of, you know, uh, to deal with um, the ways in which birds can lethally, for them, interact with human structures, whether it's from an oil spill, I think, but also like, you know, wind farms, obviously, you know, and stuff like that, uh, need lights on them to warn the birds. So w- what's happening with that? Well, it's, it's an example of this sort of wanton cruelty that's not so much unlike what we've seen at the southern border with the family separations. They, um, this, this is kind of an arcane legal matter, but they basically said, um, if you are responsible for a bird's death, you know, if you have a tar pit that birds keep flying into um, and because you didn't cover it, we're not going to hold you responsible as long as you weren't trying to kill birds. <laughs> they, they, actually said, they actually said in the memo, um, just for instance, if you were to burn down a barn that was full of baby owls and you knew that it was full of, full of baby owls, as long as you didn't have a vendetta against baby owls, as long as, that wasn't the whole, as, long as murdering owls wasn't the whole point, it's fine. We're not going to find anybody any longer. Um, 
And See, those, you, usually those, when somebody wants yeah. to do something horrible, you know, or make a horrible change, they couch it in the least objectionable language possible. <laughs> That's like the worst memo. It's like Dr. Evil wrote that memo. <laughs> yes. I mean, the fact that they chose the example of baby owls, um, it's just, I, I, have to, I haven't gotten to the bottom yet of, of who wrote that thing, but um, it, uh, as I said, it, it just demonstrates this sort of wanton cruelty. Right, and also the rationale, we should say in all seriousness, the rationale is insane. In other words, most of the bird deaths that we're talking about, I mean, wind farms and, and oil pits and stuff like that, they are not, in fact, set up to kill birds. They just happen to be able to kill a lot of birds. So if you're going to use that rationale that, if it, that, that intent is the only thing that matters, you're essentially eviscerating you know, most of the guts of that act. Yeah, that's true. There's, no, one, no one has ever suggested that the, intent of, <laughs> that the intent of these things was to kill birds. That's just never going to come into play here. I, I, it's hard to imagine any, um, anybody bringing the charge that, that somebody set up a tar pit just for the sake of a bird massacre. So we got, we've got that. I mean, uh, by the way, you should read Nick's article because it goes into a lot more detail than we'll be able to go to here on the radio. But then we've also got rollbacks on the Endangered Species Act. Tell us about that. Yeah, well, um, there's been a rule in place for a long time that if an animal species is considered threatened, which means that it's not quite to the critical level of um, where it's, it's it's not it's not it's it's numbers are not quite so low yet that they're uh, that they're listed as endangered species that, that that they still get the same protections because it's effectively the same they are in danger uh, so they've um, they've lifted that protection for 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 uh, threatened species and the other thing they've done is um, and the Bush in fairness the Bush administration did the same thing they have refused to put any new animals on the list um, and there are so there are animals like uh, like the American wolverine um, which uh, are their population is dwindling because of climate change they depend on uh, on like these and snow and ice uh, to be able to have a for shelter in the winter uh, so it's destroying their habitats their populations dwindling there might not be any American wolverines left in 50 years and so there are outside groups that that are always monitoring what's happening with animals like this, and then they go to the government and say, "Hey, wolverines are endanger- endangered now. You should uh, put those on your list." But uh, they've refused to consider any of those uh, the requests, and the reason they don't want to is uh, the more animals that are protected, um, the more the more uh, lands are like off limits for for the energy industry for for oil and gas drilling uh, because when you go drill in the wilderness it destroys animal habitats so uh it, it's it's very much uh, it's a hindrance to to the oil industry for instance to protect the wolverines and that's where the pressure is coming from. Right. And it's, it's I mean, I, it's each position is the reverse of the other. So uh, if you want to protect the wolverine or the sage grouse, um, you're basically talking about protecting lands. Uh, and you're probably also protecting an ecosystem within which that animal lives and plays a part. There isn't really any, any species that doesn't uh, eat or get eaten or play some kind of other, uh, you know, um, symbiotic role with other species. So if you're, if you're going to protect 
protect the species, you're going to probably protect the land that it lives on, So, which is sort of good news if you're an environmentalist or a conservation-oriented person, and bad news if you want to do mining, drilling, and logging. Uh, but we know which side is winning the argument right now, right? We do, yeah. And uh, I have to say that even for climate change deniers, I think a lot of their consciences can be pricked by uh, the image of of animal populations being wiped out that one hits a little closer to home and it's harder to deny um than something as abstract as you know the the earth being becoming uninhabitable. Right. So, you know, I guess, and this isn't necessarily in your article and, and I don't know if anybody knows the answer to this question, but I mean, you know, I don't know. I followed the Trump campaign in 2015 and 16 pretty closely. I don't remember him saying a lot about this kind of stuff. So was this, I mean, I just, I'm just assuming now that the kinds of people who helped finance him, helped get him elected, the kind of Wilbur Cross, uh, 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 no, that's not his name. What's his name? The Commerce Secretary, Wilbur Cross. Wilbur, the, Ross. Wilbur Ross. Wilbur Cross <laughs> yep. was the uh, governor of Connecticut. The Wilbur Ross, you know, group of kind of American oligarchs. I, I just assume this is sort of part of the package that they anticipated getting if they could get their guy elected. That's true. I will say, I, 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 in an earlier draft of the article, I, I, I talked about this. My editor removed it. But Trump is no fan of animals at, at a, on a personal level. <laughs> right. This is pretty well documented. Um, he, his first wife, Ivana, had a poodle that hated him, and there was, there was no love lost. He's the first president in something like 150 years who has not brought a pet to the White House. Uh, so, and in fact, when the Pences brought, they brought a whole bunch of animals with them from Indiana. Trump called them like hicks or, or something like that. So uh, he, uh, it's not a priority for him to protect animals. But I don't, he doesn't care much one way or the other. Uh, he certainly didn't raise, you know, something like the Endangered Species Act in his campaign. <clears throat> it would not have played well. Right. And and we also, he's very close to Rudy Giuliani, who we know uh, thinks that people who have pet ferrets are mentally ill. So um, he's got a ferret hater very close to him. So, you know, on a more serious level, one of the things that you found, and this was really surprising to me, I mean, often when we think about an administration like, like Trump's coming in, there's a kind of deep state there, so to speak, or a so-called permanent government. There are, there are people who've been in their jobs for a really long time, you know, who know how the procedures work, who maybe know how to drag some Thing out rather than have it happen immediately if it's it's something loathsome. Uh, and so you look at maybe a guy like Trump who's not big on subtleties and not a detail guy, and you think, well, it might be a long time, possibly even never, before he gets what he wants. But there doesn't seem to be quite the same kind of deep state uh, there in, in the agencies that we're talking about. Yeah, that's, that's correct. It differs from agency to agency. And in some cases, like, you know, if you work for FEMA, then the only thing you really have to worry about is uh, is like your budget getting cut, um, but a lot, you know a lot of these people have ba- basically non-political jobs, and uh, and in some cases they are pretty well left alone. I mean, this, in the State Department, they've the career workers have mostly just been ignored in this administration. But uh, with environmental stuff, and especially with the Fish and Wildlife Service, the Republicans have always been strategic about getting their own people installed down to the regional and state level to make sure that those career workers are carrying out their bidding and that they're not, uh, you know, that, that there aren't like, you know, liberals embedded uh, in those, in those, uh, those local offices. So uh, the Bush administration did the same thing, like did an overhaul of the people in those positions, installed their own ideologues uh, everywhere across the map. And then when the, when the Democrats come in, 
they tend to be a little bit more hands-off about this kind of thing, and they say, we're, we're not going to interfere with your work. We trust you guys, the career workers, uh, but they don't tend to, to, to replace the people who, uh, who their predecessors installed. So we end up with, uh, unless, they, unless they just happen to retire or, or leave on their own accord, we tend to get these Republican appointees for the long haul. So if you were on a different kind of show with a different kind of host, a more conservative host, he might be saying, hey, but Nick, you know, look, uh, this is how you get the economy restarted. You've got you've got to let uh, industry have a, a freer hand. Uh, you've got to let people have access to lands. We can't let some obscure species of Wolverine stand in between us and the revival of the American economy. I mean, is that in any way a persuasive counterargument? No, it's really not. I mean, the uh, they, they use it with... So they use it a lot with the energy industry, um, but they just can't point to any empirical research that suggests that that this is that things like the bird regulations that I mentioned, the fines um, that these companies pay, that those have anything to do with uh, the with the general health or the fluctuations in the markets um, for these resources. And you can it's it's pretty easy to figure out why they're I think when they when they when they kind of paper on that when the administration papers on that justification uh, it's pretty clear that they're speaking in bad faith because um, often th- these regulatory changes um, are just they basically amount to handouts to one to one particular company or a couple of particular companies that have deep connections with them um, uh, they, 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 they're, uh, they're basically straight-up favors. Right. I mean, that's uh, we're talking in particular about that bird protection, the Migratory Bird Treaty Act, right, that it's just yep. a, a couple of companies that are paying the bulk uh, of those fines. They want them to go away. Yeah, correct. Uh, all right. So for more on this story, uh, you should read uh, Nick Tabor's uh, article uh, in New York Magazine, where he is a reporter and research- researcher. Thanks for joining us today, Nick. Of course. Thanks for having me. All right. Uh, coming back uh, in the second segment, we're going to talk about something that happened over the weekend. You know, holiday weekends are sort of busy for you. You don't pay as much attention to the news. And uh, it turns out that uh, some hackers took advantage of that to, in fact, try to affect the ability to publish newspapers. We'll tell you what happened after this. Pollution in the home. We're back. Uh, before I get into this, I have to do like a little, I don't know, declaration of conflict or non-conflict of interest or something. So uh, this story that we're about to talk uh, about right now is going to talk a lot about uh, Tribune Publishing. So that includes the Hartford Current. I have worked for the Hartford Current uh, as uh, first a full-timer and then as a freelancer for, let's see, 19, since 1976. Uh, and I've been a columnist there for 35 of the last 36 years. It just so happens, I swear to God, this is a total coincidence, but it just so happens that today I'm announcing the fact that I'm leaving the Hartford Current after all those years. It has nothing to do with the story that we're about to do, but I just wanted it on the table because we will be talking specifically about uh, Tribune Publishing, uh, sometimes or formerly or occasionally known as Trunk. Uh, they own the Hartford Current as well as, as well as a lot of other newspapers. And over the weekend, uh, they were hit. They were hit with uh, malware, probably ransomware. But here is somebody who knows a lot more about that than I do. Robert McMillan writes about computer security, hackers, and privacy for the Wall Street Journal, which is not part of Tribune Publishing. Uh, so, um, Rob, uh, Mac- uh, Bob McMillan, thanks for joining us today. Uh, give us a, a sort of a thumbnail sketch of, of what happened over the weekend. 
Hey, Colin. Um, thanks for having me. Uh, I, what an amazing coincidence that yes. you, this is the day that you're leaving. I can't believe that. I, um, so what happened over the weekend was uh, people working within uh, the, the, the sort of Tribune uh, network tried to submit copy to be published on the print newspapers, and they were having difficulty doing it. Um, what seems to have happened, Tribune has said that there was a virus that you know affected computer systems there that slowed, gummed everything up and prevented them from having sort of an orderly publication of newspapers by the weekend many newspapers that were being published through the, the Tribune Empire and other newspapers, even such as ours, the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, were, um, that were also being published at Tribune facilities, were not going out on time. And it seems that the backstory here is that their, you know, the, the computer systems went down. It seems very likely that they, they, were, they went down through uh, a form of malicious software called ransomware that basically you know, seized up computers that were supposed to be operating and made them unusable until uh, a ransom payment is, is made. Right. And so uh, if you're doing ransomware, um, one of the things you want to do, if you're being smart about it, you want to hit uh, institutions and businesses that, in fact, need to be able to do a certain thing at a certain time uh, because you can obviously extract concessions from them uh, more rapidly than if they can kind of wait and see or, or try to wiggle out of it some way. So in a way, it's probably not too surprising that a, a rans- that ransomware hackers would go after something like newspapers, right? Yeah, it's it's sort of a disturbing trend, though, because ransomware, uh, initially, when it started out, it was like a scattershot kind of uh, piece of malicious software. The authors of it didn't really care who they hit. They thought if they infected a lot of machines, they would eventually find people who were willing to pay the, the ransom, which was typically, in the early days, somewhere in the neighborhood of 300 bucks. Mm-hmm. So you're working at home on your computer. It... it sees this up, it becomes totally uh, unusable, and there's a little warning message that says, you know, send us 300 bucks, typically using the digital currency Bitcoin, and everything will be okay. Now, in the early days, the scattershot method was working just fine, but I think what the criminals realized was that sometimes they were hitting very large institutions that were, that were really dependent on these computers, and those institutions would pay up very quickly. Um, one one famous case was um, a hospital in Los Angeles that you know was basically rendered um, useless over the course of a weekend, and they they just paid the money. They paid uh, close to twenty thousand dollars just to get systems up and running. And so, in the last year, we've seen uh, more targeted attacks with ransomware, where com- with the the hackers identify specific companies, figure out things about their network, figure out what the weak spots are and then go after what they call mission-critical systems, systems that really need to be on, like a newspaper print publishing system would be a perfect example of this. And, and then when you've got a deadline, you, the paper's got to get out, you know, it's, it, even if it's a $50,000 or $100,000 um, option, it's, it's paying the ransom is actually, you know, makes, makes sense in that case. And so they, though, those companies are much more likely to pay out than just sort of your scattershot, you know, if I get hit with ransomware on my home computer, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to recover it. From, I'm not going to pay the ransom. I'm going to recover it from a backup, and the criminals aren't going to make any money that way. So this uh, uh, malware is called uh, Ryuk. I don't know if I'm saying it the right way or if anybody even knows how to say it. Uh, do we know, <laughs> do we know where, where this comes from? Do we know? Is, does it come from outside the country? Do we know anything about it? 
Yeah, we know some things about RIUC. I mean, it's been so the, the companies, the security, computer security companies that investigate this stuff have been aware of RIUC since, you know, the summer of last year. And it's known to be used in these targeted type of ransomware attacks. Um, and, you know, they, they, the people behind it have made hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not more, um, by, by hitting institutions very much like Tribune in the past. Um, the thing that's intriguing about Ryuk is that it shares uh, some code with malicious software that was used by North Korea. Mm-hmm. So at, when this attack happened, the question that bubbled up pretty quickly once the malicious software was identified uh, was, was North Korea behind this attack. Now, most people that I've talked to don't think that that's a likely possibility. It's, it's, it's very difficult. You know, it's, it's very difficult to figure out who's behind a cyber attack. This is something the professionals call attribution, figuring out who the author of the, the malware was and what their intentions were. Um, and the consensus right now is that it's too early to say definitively, you know, was it North Korea, was it North, North Korea? But my sense from my reporting is that Rio, because, you know, Eastern European criminals trying to get money, not um, a nation state trying to sort of make a political point by attacking the American press. See, I don't know so much about this, but my sense is it's also hard to tell sometimes, maybe not this time, but sometimes, where state actions and and independent private criminals begin. That, you know, in, in some of the cases with the so-called Russian hacking, you know, there are some people who will say, well, there's almost no distinction between Russian hacking and state, uh, state hacking by Russia. Uh, but I guess maybe sometimes it wouldn't even be that easy to tell whether there was a, a state behind what the, what the hackers were doing. Hard to tell, and when you talk to the professionals who are analyzing this stuff, they they never really say definitively like it was, you know, except in very rare cases. But but that it was, you know, it was definitely this person or this entity or not. They say we're pretty confident it was the Russians, or we have a moderate degree of confidence it was the North Koreans. You know, they 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 always sort of cage the um, the assessment with uh, with the, like we're pretty sure <laughs> because you know in the digital world. It's really easy to pretend to be someone else. I mean, I think we're all becoming very aware of this. Um, and if you were a nation-state hacker and you, you know, there's a lot of knowledge about, say, you know, say you're Russia and you know, everybody knows a lot of, 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 of details about how the North Koreans are hacking. Well, the the logical thing would to do would be to pretend to be the North Koreans so that no one knows who's behind the attack. So it's a real cloak and dagger kind of shadowy world. Um, and, and I, I do think you're right uh, about the, the sort of blurring between the, the criminal and the, and the sort of espionage-backed actors. I mean, we saw this with Yahoo, which um, kind of astounded me, you know, in the, in the, in the famous you know, Yahoo attack where three billion accounts were compromised. When the United States finally indicted the, um, the attackers, they described, you know, Russian spies operating hand-in-hand with people that were doing pharmaceutical spam on the network, on Yahoo's network. It was really, you know, it was like a a public-private collaboration of the criminal nature. 
Right. I mean, I guess in the case of ransomware, you know, if they're looking for 120 grand or 300 grand or 400 grand, that that points away from a nation state to me. It's like you pay us a certain amount of money, you get your stuff back. Uh, I would assume that if North Korea or Russia or some other uh, government wanted to really screw with us, they wouldn't be looking for 400 grand to make the problem <laughs> go away. You would think that, but <laughs> the North Koreans actually have have um, been pretty aggressive in just trying to make money through their hacking. Mm. You know, a number of attacks that have been linked to North Korea have been like flat out money motivated. The most famous of which was an attack on the the sort of back end uh, rails of the financial uh, banking system called called the SWIFT network. Um, and the you know attackers thought to be North Koreans tried to take to, to take a, a billion dollars by hacking into banks and making on you know unauthorized um, fund tra- transfers. So, yeah, you're right. I mean, you know, if you think about the Iranians or the um, the the Russians, we don't you know the Chinese. It's usually they they the different types of motivations behind the hacking, not just trying to make money, but you know some of these nation state actors are you know they they do have their feet in both worlds. So it, so it does get tricky at times. I'd say it, in in this case, though, I mean, it really does seem like it's Eastern European criminals just trying to make uh, a quick buck. We should say uh, we're, t- we're talking to Robert McMillan from uh, the Wall Street Journal right now. We should say that I mean, you know, you think about this stuff and you think the big vulnerability would be online operations. One of the weird things about this particular hack was it really was d- directed at and had the biggest impact on printed newspapers as opposed to their sites, right? It almost feels like um, an Austin Powers plot or something like that, you know, like, I will bring America to its knees by attacking the print newspapers, you know. Uh, clearly, the, the, the center of our <laughs> discourse about news has moved to online properties, so that would, those would be the, the most effective targets right now. If you took down the Wall Street Journal's website or the New York Times' website, that would be a huge deal. Um, and And... The print newspapers, it almost seems sort of quaint to go after them. But, that, but again, that, you know, if you think about the model of the criminal, you know, the criminals like looking for something that, where, where you have this deadline and the trucks have to move and everything's queued up, um, totally makes sense. We should give a shout out to our uh, ink-stained friends and colleagues here. They got the freaking papers out anyway. It's not <laughs> as though people didn't get the, get, I mean, the absence, was it usually classifieds and paid obits and stuff like that? Is that what didn't get out? Uh, I, I, I th- that's what I've heard. Um, I, I actually didn't see the, um, the, the, the newspapers that, that, did, that were published. Um, but yeah, I, I, I find it kind of amazing because my understanding is that these, 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 these print jobs are like trains leaving a station, right? Mm-hmm. And so we get like at the journal, um, at the, the Olympia, uh, center down in, in California, we get like a, a run that lasts a certain number of hours, but if you if you miss that, you know we you know we're always told as reporters you can't <laughs> you can't miss that deadline or um, your story just simply can't run. There's not there's nothing you can do. So it's always seemed like a very rigid uh, s- series of uh, of print jobs, and then you throw that into disarray. It's kind of amazing to me that they they got the papers out. Great. Maybe our editors were lying to us about the deadlines all along. And it was like, <laughs> uh, this actually just sort of exposed that whole fiction. But th- it is pretty, uh, I mean, newspapers historically uh, are pretty amazing that way. Whatever the obstacle is, you know, in 1810 of a paper mill burns down, they just find some other way to get it out. So this is very much uh, part of the tradition. Now, let's look I, at the... I, I just got to say, 
say, I would like to think that, the, I'd like to imagine that they, they called up some, you know, newspaper print tech who had retired 20 years ago, mm. and he turned on some system that hasn't been <laughs> used since before computers and, like, got them running, you know, just over the holidays. That's, that's my fantasy about how this right. works. Like, I, I don't really know. What it's happened. like Battlestar Galactica, where Captain right, Andromeda yeah, has yeah. everything. He's, he's the only, he doesn't believe in, he, in, uh, in wireless connections. Everything's kind of hardwired. Everything has a cord. Uh, all right, so that's the really attractive side of this. And it's not that this other thing is an unattractive side, but whenever something like this happens, two value systems collide. One of them is the belief that all of us who've worked in journalism, who've worked in newspapers have, which is if we know something, we should tell the people. If we know something of significance, we should tell it. But that's bumping up against Tribune's own internal corporate interest in maybe not telling every little thing that just happened to it. So how much do you know at this point? I mean, Tribune hasn't really made a clean breast of everything that happened to it yet, right? No, they haven't. And um, in the tech world, when these kind of outages happen, uh, Companies typically feel a responsibility to really explain what they got wrong, how you know how it happened, and how, what steps they've taken to prevent that from happening again. And it would be nice to see that from the Tribune company. You know, it may be. I mean, to be to give them to give them some wiggle room here. It may be that they they're still figuring it out. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know, this this kind of stuff is complicated, and their their you know their print operations are maybe not the center of the high tech knowledge in the company but that it would be nice to see that happen i don't think that's going to happen here i think there's still uh, a, a bunch of companies that are kind of embarrassed when stuff like this happens and they don't see any upside to kind of sharing the knowledge about you know how how it occurred which is too bad because that's obviously useful to other publishers and other companies in general because they can look at you know the, the, the sort of case study and go geez we should you know we have a similar vulnerability we can protect ourselves from that right and it would at least be helpful to know and I'm not sure that we do maybe maybe you'll correct me on this but I don't even think that we know if it were was ransomware whether they paid the ransom and if so what it was I mean it would seem to me yeah. that would be like really important information for everybody else to have yeah Tribune is not is not saying all right. So, uh, well, thanks very much for uh, telling us what is known uh, about this, uh, Robert McMillan. Uh, and uh, thanks very much for appearing on the show. Hey, a pleasure, Colin. Thanks right. for having me. All right. So we're going to take another little break here. The, I'll tell you something that I'm doing this year. This is like a New Year's resolution that I've actually so far kept uh, one day. <laughs> Let's not get overexcited about it. But I'm sort of famous. I, I don't think this has ever been mentioned before on the air. I'm kind of famous here for screwing up what we call the clock. Uh, so I get really excited about whatever's in the A segment or the B segment, and then it turns out there's like four minutes left. for the. We have three segments to every show that we do here, just about every show. So um, I'm kind of, they, they even, if somebody else does it, they call it the Colin McEnroe clock. They said, oh, I'm doing, John Dankowski will say, oh, I'm doing a Colin McEnroe clock here. That means he's let the timing get a little bit out of control. The A is too long. There's not enough time for the final segment. So my goal this year is to be a better person and to leave enough time so that we can talk about the third thing. So, and I, so far I have done that. Everything is sort of a good size and shape. We'll take a little break. There's no way I can screw this part of it up now. So probably a dangerous thing to say. I know your password. I'm giving it out. There you go. I now have access to all your accounts. Oh boy. I'm gonna tweet and update your fish. Ain't a thing you can do about it. You just got hacked. I know your password. I'm giving it out. Hey, 
Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan, who still hasn't gotten used to writing 2019 on death warrants, and me, Kion Wolf. Amanda Fish is an endangered species, and the part of Bill Curry was played by Marty Kardashian. On tomorrow's show, Governor Dan Malloy says, just look over your shoulders, honey, because I'll be there. And now, back to Colin. All right. Uh, we're going to end today with a story from the world of sports, uh, or perhaps a series of stories from the world of sports, the stories of what happens uh, when coaches uh, don't uh, perform that well or their team doesn't perform that well. It could be argued, uh, based on evidence before our eyes, that black coaches pay a much higher price uh, for the dysfunction of their teams than white coaches do. Joining us to talk about that is Jerry Brewer, sports columnist for The Washington Post. Uh, welcome to our show and to our conversation. Thanks for having me. So uh, lay out the, the landscape for us here at the beginning of 2019. Uh, how many coaches got fired? How many of them were African-American? There are eight coaching openings, which is a quarter of the NFL. And you have a situation in which uh, five coaches of color lost their job. And right now in the NFL, there are currently two black head coaches and zero uh, black general managers because Ozzie Newsome of the uh, Baltimore Ravens is about to retire. So uh, this this is sort of in the face of what was supposed to be an era of self conscious improvement. There was uh, there was supposed to be an effort really to, to correct for this problem. Uh, tell us about the Rooney Rule. What does the so called Rooney Rule say? Well, the the Rooney Rule uh, is essentially a rule that's in place to help the NFL. Um, give job interviews for head coaching and general managing positions to people of color. You know, they're essentially saying, we know we have a problem. Um, Art Rooney, the, the late great uh, owner of the Pittsburgh Steelers, is someone who recognized that something needed to be done in a league that has been 70% black for more than 20 years. And uh, the NFL is going about trying to address that. But uh, I think the Rooney rule in a lot of ways is, is a macro rule. And there's a lot of micro issues that need to be solved as well if you truly want a diverse candidate pool. What, what are some of the micro issues? Uh, I think the biggest thing in the NFL, if you're, if you're a coach who's ascending to be a head coach, uh, you're going to get these jobs by – being an offensive or a defensive coordinator. And when you look at the offensive and defensive coordinators in the NFL, they are predominantly white. And so it's wonderful to have a rule in place about you know, interviewing candidates. But from a development standpoint, I think the NFL, if it's serious about this, could do a better job in identifying candidates who want to be head coaches ultimately and grooming them. Uh, teaching them the, the the proper methods in which to go about networking and how to rise to this position. And um, I think they, they do this in certain ways, but I think there needs to be an even stronger commitment to it if you're truly concerned about the issue. Right. And I, I also feel as though within the NFL, uh, around issues like this, there tends to be quite a bit of kabuki theater. And it seems like the Rooney Rule is kind of set up in a way that might serve or might be served by that. In other words, all you have to do is interview somebody. So, I mean, and that's better than doing nothing. Uh, and, and maybe ultimately it, it might help erode whatever latent existent, uh, resistance lives there. But 
you know, I, doesn't it just sort of provide them with a chance to say, yeah, we did that thing. We interviewed so-and-so. Sure. From the league standpoint, from the league office, Commissioner Roger Goodell and those guys, there is a desire to to get more people of color into not only head coaching jobs, but positions of leadership. But from a franchise perspective, when you look at the 32 teams in the NFL, uh, they're motivated by a lot of other things. Um, you know, they, they want to win the press conference. And it's very difficult a lot of times to win the press conference by hiring this linebacker coach that few people know about, but who gave a great interview. Instead, you're going to have to, you're going to go out and you're going to get a name commodity. And a lot of times that can be a, a coach who had success before, but got fired, kind of a retread. Uh, sometimes teams go the college route and, and take the hot new college coach. Uh, it, it has become popular in some circles, even more more so in college than in the NFL. But you're starting to kind of loosely see it in the NFL, in which you have people who are coaches in waiting, where they've outright been declared a coach in rating, or there's sort of a wink wink deal with an assistant coach. You know, just kind of stay, and when this coach decides to retire, you'll have the job. And in those cases, those jobs aren't open. And again, I think there's a code that needs to be cracked if you're someone who, as, who aspires to be a head coach. And it's hard to get in that network of people. And uh, th- that's ultimately the issue. You know, how, how do you get your face in front of someone? Um, how do you uh, network with the right people? And then, and then when you get the opportunity to interview, is it truly an interview or is it just they brought you in for two hours to satisfy a rule because they've already decided they want to hire this other coach. Jerry, I also wonder how big a role the fans play in all of this. And I'll give you an example, okay? So uh, this year the Green Bay Packers fired Mike McCarthy as their head coach. Uh, Green Bay's never had a black head coach. I doubt they've ever had an offensive or defensive coordinator of color. Um, And as a result, their fans, and Wisconsin's kind of a white place anyway, their fans, they don't have any familiarity even with almost the iconography of that, of that person giving, as you say, the press conference at the end of the game. And, And and you, it just does, seems to me that fans, if it's going to be a seven and nine season, you know, or a six and ten season, and they're going to look at, at that that head coach of color, they've never seen a person like that before in their market, and somehow or other, either consciously or subconsciously, they're going to wind up making that very negative connection. Uh, yes, um, I mean th- that is an issue. You know, it's funny. I, I Green Bay, as white as they are, they, they've actually had a a better history than so. Some other franchises. I mean, I think back to, to Ray Rhodes and mm-hmm. and uh, a couple oh, of right, others. Yeah. Um, so it's it's uh, it's funny, um, but yes, I, I think um, it's 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 very difficult when you don't know these people. You know, for instance, uh, the Denver Broncos uh, hired Vance Joseph two years ago. Uh, they just fired him. Uh, Stephen Wilkes was the coach of the Arizona Cardinals. He was one and done, and nobody expected Arizona to be any good this year. And guess what? They weren't any good, mm-hmm. but they just decided to move on because he was not a popular enough personality. Now they're going to try to go out and get someone who's got a little more sizzle. And again, you know, it, it goes beyond simply uh, just hiring. You know, retention is an issue. And then when black coaches get fired, it's a lot harder for them to be uh, successful retreads 
as the mother of their white counterparts. And that's a huge issue. You know, you look at someone like Jim Caldwell. He's been the head coach at the Indianapolis Colts. Uh, also, the Detroit Lions has had success, uh, especially related to, um, you know, what those franchises have been historically. But people look at him and they're just like, he's just this boring old twice-fired coach, when in reality, he's someone who has played for a Super Bowl. He's uh, a great offensive mind. And he's someone who, when you look back at his uh, job in Detroit, he actually outperformed greatly the historic standard of the Detroit Lions. So if ever in a year in which you have eight openings, someone should get an opportunity to come back and be a coach, it's Jim Caldwell. But we'll see if, if the teams feel like they can sell Jim Caldwell to the greater public. Right. And, you know, so we've gotten this far without saying the word Kaepernick, but we have to say it now, because it seems to me another aspect of this is that if you have a predominantly uh, white head coaching workforce uh, and you have a player like Kaepernick uh, who could, I mean, so many teams have quarterback crises, have injuries, uh, your hometown Washington uh, team, whose last name shall not be mentioned, uh, had such a terrible quarterback crisis this year. I think the guy that they wound up with, like the fourth, the fourth guy after the first three got injured was a guy who had to binge the team on the Madden game so that he could learn their names fast <laughs> enough, but still no Colin Kaepernick. No, no, Colin Kaepernick would be way too rusty. It just seems to me that those two things are connected somehow. Yes, I mean, I, I think, you know, anyone who has, has you know, experienced being black, I mean, we feel like we have to work twice as hard and we feel like we're going to get half as many opportunities. And if we ever do something wrong, um, we feel like we're stigmatized unfairly. And um, uh, I think that goes with anyone who's, I'm not saying in this instance that Colin Kaepernick did something wrong, but he has gone against league protocol. Mm -hmm. And um, that, that, that holds him back. I mean, you, you do look at what happened in Washington and, um, how they essentially forfeited the second half of the season because they would not consider him. And so when you have a, a situation in which a franchise would rather lose um, than give the quote-unquote controversial black quarterback or, um, or even just a, a black coach an opportunity, I mean, there's a problem there. And you don't – I mean, we can't speak to people's motivations, um, but you do wonder – um, if there's a, a tinge of racism there. And if there isn't a, a tinge of racism, there's at least um, a lack of understanding in who these uh, figures are as people, uh, which is a significant problem. So at the beginning of the conversation, we talked about the number of vacancies uh, that there are. Um, who who wouldn't who wouldn't it surprise you to see uh, among coaches of color coming out of this cycle of vacancies with a job? You talked about uh, Jim Caldwell. Are there one or two other really uh, strong candidates who who may get one of these jobs? Yes, uh, you look to Dallas and you see Chris Richard. He was the former defensive coordinator of the Seattle Seahawks and uh, the 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 guy who coached uh, the Legion of Boom, uh, the secondary group that powered the Seahawks to uh, the Super Bowl. Uh, five years ago. Um, he's now in Dallas. Uh, he's kind of their assistant head coach and secondary coach, and he's been a driving force in the Dallas Cowboys defensive improvement. Um, someone who we're interviewing very well, someone who I think has been scheduled for two interviews so far, 
would not be surprised if he got a job. You also look to, uh, I believe, Kansas City has Eric Bieniemy, um, who is a uh, former running back. You know, a guy who's an offensive coordinator now. Um, he's someone that I think will have a good opportunity um, to get a job. And if he doesn't get one this year, he should at least be someone who interviews with two or three teams and um, is high on the list next season. Well, uh, hopefully we'll see a little bit of progress here because this is something kind of dispiriting about this, and it did seem as though the, the league had some uh, idea of changing things a few years ago, but the, the changes are, if anything, coming way slower than expected. But uh, Jerry Brewer, sports columnist for The Washington Post, uh, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Okay, so uh, thanks to uh, Betsy Kaplan for throwing this show together on, well, I mean, it wasn't short notice or anything. We had, we had really great guests here uh, today, but and we were coming off a holiday, and it's sometimes not easy to restart us. So three terrific guests on this show. Uh, let me just quickly tell you, because I've got about a, a minute here, because I actually did manage the clock. I could be an NFL coach. I managed the clock correctly. So uh, I want to say that tomorrow we, do, we did record last Thursday uh, an interview with uh, outgoing Governor Dan Malloy. It's not that outgoing. Uh, and uh, so that'll, that's going to air tomorrow. I, I think it's a, he's a very difficult guy to interview. He's, he's not, in fact, somebody who really enjoys sharing a lot about himself other than the things he's already decided to share. But uh, anyway, you can listen tomorrow. Judge for yourself. It's our legacy uh, interview with uh, Dan Malloy. Coming up on Friday uh, on the news, we're all going to see the movie Vice, uh, which is about Dick Cheney. Uh, and uh, we are excited to have, as we occasionally do, uh, John Dankosky as one of our those panelists, along with, with Tracy Wu Fastenberg, Tracy Wu Fastenberg, and James Hanley. So we're back from the holidays. We are refreshed. Uh, we are excited. We are motivated. Uh, we are going to do even better for you in 2019 than we did in 2018. And if we don't, I don't know. By March, no one will remember that I said this. 